This is a story about a writer who wrote about a killer and so much more. We're here to tell you about that writer, Michelle McNamara, and the writing that became the book All Be Gone in the Dark, One Woman's Obsessive Search for the Golden State Killer. This is the story of courage and love and dedication and the story of misery, depravity, and cruelty. It is the shock of an untimely death, a twist in the story that no one saw coming. But mostly, our story in these three episodes is the story of a birth, the birth of a book. We're happy you've joined us. Episode 1. Not many people are aware that in California, during the 1970s and 80s, there was a man who committed 50 sexual assaults and at least 10 murders. It's now become a decades-old cold case. Witnesses and victims have moved away or passed away. The case encompasses multiple jurisdictions in both Southern and Northern California, and for years it lacked the benefits of DNA or lab analysis. An unknown offender was raping women in the 1970s in Sacramento. He quickly became known as the East Area Rapist. After about rape 15-16, that entire Sacramento, Contra Costa County, they were just gripped by this. He seemed to mysteriously disappear in July of 1979. Separate from that, there started to be some offenses in Southern California in which couples were killed in uh, Santa Barbara County, in Ventura, in Irvine. They called him the original Night Stalker. It wasn't until 2001 when DNA got good enough that in a lab they went, oh my God, this has been the same guy. You've just heard from Michelle McNamara, the author of All Be Gone in the Dark, from a recording made in 2013. To tell the story of publishing All Be Gone in the Dark is to give voice to various people dedicated to seeing the book in print, much like Michelle's dedication to seeing the killer caught. In these episodes, you'll hear from the author, her magazine and book editors, her agent and lead researcher, and two New York Times bestselling authors. They all supported this talented writer whose brain held a gallery of harrowing crime scenes where others' minds would be reserved for sports statistics, dessert recipes, or Shakespeare quotes. It was Michelle and her talented magazine editor who renamed the monstrous man who committed these crimes, the Golden State Killer, in order to make the unimaginable more understandable. It was Michelle, along with her researcher, who pieced together the vast number of clues left behind. And it was Michelle, knowing this perpetrator better than anyone else, who believed the case was solvable. Her faith was in human error, and she had a lifetime of asking why. According to her husband, the comedian Patton Oswalt, she's the queen of why. She wanted to investigate everything. You know, she was like, why is this? Why is this? Why isn't this known? It was like an insult to her. Why isn't this known? So she was, I think from the beginning, she was just wired to go, but, but why is that? But why? Why? They had to buy her a book when she was a little girl called Tell Me Why, because she was constantly, but why is this? So they had to go, it was like one of those big science books, and they would get the Tell Me Why book. Michelle McNamara. I've always had an interest in unsolved crimes. 
probably because they're like puzzles and uh you know it, it was it was just something that always interested me and once the internet started to change and more information became available i found myself really kind of puzzling these out online and um would would come across information that was that was interesting and valuable and it felt like investigative reporting to me back in the day you know, if something didn't happen in your jurisdiction, it wasn't in the paper, you didn't hear about it. So he really, the fact that he did offend in all these different jurisdictions meant, you know, it wasn't like people knew that this one guy had done all these things. So you have that going for him. You also, you know, they didn't, um, there used to be this kind of thought of don't publicize rapes and stuff like that because you don't want copycats. You don't want him to change his method. So frankly, I mean, I think I talked to some people who didn't feel like it had really gotten out there until like, rape 15 or something. And one of the victims said it came out later that his MO was that he would break into the house beforehand to get to know the victim. And then, and she said, and that happened to me. And she was victim number five. And she said, if I had known that, I would have gotten a security system on my house. I would have, you know, just wasn't out there that, that that's what he was doing. So, I mean, I think that there, you know, it's a complex case. There's no one like him out there. There hasn't been before. He is such a unique offender. And so you kind of, it's like right when you think you have him figured out, he changes shape and then you kind of go, oh, well. And and the other thing is just there's so many elliptical small clues that he left behind because he had so many offenses. I mean, 50 rapes and 10 murders, there's a lot of clues to sift through. So it's the possibility of sifting through all these things and trying to make sense of it. Michelle's interest in true crime can be traced back to a childhood incident. So what happened when I was 14 is um, I grew up in Oak Park, Illinois, which is outside Chicago. And a neighbor very close by was brutally murdered the summer I was 14. And it really kind of shocked our town, and it was headline news for sure. But what it really just particularly, and I don't think up until that point I had been interested in murder at all or unsolved crimes, I was just very gripped by this story and very shocked by it and very um, obsessed with kind of the blankness of this person's face that he could just, that we didn't know who may be like slinking by us covered in blood. I mean, it just seemed so unbelievable to me that someone among us was a cold-blooded killer who had cut this woman's throat. It was terrible. And the way I kind of describe it is everyone moved on, and I couldn't. There's certain genres of crime that interest me. I would never be interested in mafia stuff. I'm not interested in really reading a book about the ins and outs of Ted Bundy's mind, because we kind of know what happened with, with all that. To me, it really is just the puzzle. It's like the am amassing of ominous details and then trying to arrange them into something that makes sense. And the possibility that a lot of these do get cold very fast. People don't aren't able to give them the attention they need. And the possibility that some of them could be solved is, is fascinating to me. I do think that there's a certain kind of person that, you know, you go down the rabbit hole kind of gleefully, like, oh, there's just this unending thread of information that I can find. So part of what you can do in the internet now is just, it's sort of beyond Google at this point. Anybody can Google stuff, but, you know, as a friend of mine said, you know, it's something like, there's some study done that like 80% of people don't go beyond the first page of Google. He's like, you go to page 30. I know so many women who grew up uh, uh, sort of fixated on true crime or came to it a certain, and uh, every, we all identified with her so intensely. 
My name is Megan Abbott, and I'm a crime novelist. See, I've written, I think, eight crime novels. Um, um, and uh, I'm a true crime enthusiast from a young age. I actually came to true crime before crime fiction. And I write for uh, TV as well now in the crime genre. <laughs> 80s was a big true crime movies and they all informed all of us who became crime novelists but I, we never left it behind so for me it was just you know she was sort of the perfect person to sort of embody that spirit but she was also someone who actually was going to solve this stuff you know we, we were just sort of making store you know we were sort of consume it but we were not investigators or reporters or um well, much less law enforcement, you know, but so she was sort of like boots on the ground for us. Michelle's husband, Patton Oswalt. By the time she told me that she was working on this, she, you know, she had written the article for LA Magazine and then got the book offer, but she had been doing her webpage for years at that point, True Crime Diary, and she had been writing about cold cases and getting very, very deep into them, and because she knew a lot about serial killers and, and this type of crime, she was like, you're thinking of this like it's an early 90s post-Silence of the Lambs thriller where the killer is this diabolical, near-omnipresent figure that can come after the people that are chasing him. Hello, Marys. You're one of Jack Crawford's, aren't you? In real life, these guys do not go after strong prey. They look for the weak or the vulnerable. And somebody that is talking to cops and researching stuff, I'm the last guy he would come after. They just don't do that. She also reminded me of a quote by uh, James Elroy. He was talking about the reason that Thomas Harris is such a brilliant writer is because he created something that does not exist and got people to be afraid of it, which is the powerful serial killer that is even deadly behind bars and can, you know, fashion handcuff keys and escape and cut people's faces off. He goes, when serial killers are operating, they are these gray zero zilches, and the only thing that they can do is prey on the weak. And the minute they're locked up in jail, they get fat, they jerk off to pornography, and they find Jesus. They don't do anything. I wasn't seeing it the way that she was because she was more into the facts and realities of these people, whereas I was more into the pop culture representations of them. Former LA Magazine editor Nancy Miller. So I met Michelle through her husband, the comedian Patton Oswalt, because at the time, this was back in 2011, I had edited him when I was an editor at Wired magazine. And he wrote a piece for me, and he said basically something to the effect of, you know, if you want to meet a really great writer, <laughs> you should meet my wife, Michelle. She does this website, truecrimediary.com. And um, what I was most intrigued about at that time as an editor at Wired, which was a lot of their geek tech stuff, was this culture of digital sleuthing and this idea that the crowd and crowdsourcing an unsolved cold case could result in the capture of a criminal. I left Wired Magazine and eventually ended up at Los Angeles Magazine, which has an incredible legacy of true crime stories, particularly under Mary Melton, who was the editor-in-chief at the time I worked there. And I guess it's testimony of kind of sticking with the story because I just looked back and saw an email from Michelle. I sort of picked through my old emails. And in 2011, she sends me an email that's like, I'm really interested in this guy known as the East Area Rapist, original Night Stalker. And at the time, she had like a Wikipedia link. And as we started talking, again, over, this is a 
well, like a couple of years, it became clear that this was an incredible story. I, I couldn't believe it. And by the time we met for coffee in 2012, she had this, I, I, I think there was this sort of verging on the obsession that would soon drive not only the narrative of the piece that ran in Los Angeles Magazine in 2013, but also drive her life and um, the completion of this book. Something I was going to say was, <laughs> I remember sitting across from her, uh, you know, at this cafe where you'd always meet to talk about this story. And I remember the first time she was talking about this guy, who I'm going to call Eurons momentarily, who eventually became the Golden State Killer as we renamed him. But I remember just sitting there and listening to her for like an hour talk about this guy and the multiple jurisdictions and the the staggering number of crimes that he committed. And somehow I had never heard of him and I, and I couldn't believe that. So that's when I knew that we, you know, at LA Mag and as an editor there, we had to pursue it. And we did for a year. I think, again, we probably reported it out over nine months. And when we published it, it was about a year and a half later. Michelle had, through the relationships that built with these detectives, acquired new evidence. So um, we knew that we weren't going to find him in our story, but what we did was launch a manhunt, both online and in print, with evidence that hadn't been revealed before. Yeah, I tried to be very, very dispassionate reading it, you know, reading it like an investigator. But then there were certain things that he did to his victims, like he would stay in the bedroom for a very long time, waiting for them to think that he had gone, and then he would shake the bed just to torture like like a kid with an insect. I'm like, oh, I hope this guy gets not only arrested, but humiliated. And I want him locked in a crappy cell eating shitty bologna sandwiches prepackaged by the state and eating that awful prison food and breathing that shitty prison air. Fuck him. Author Gillian Flynn from the introduction to the book. I want to know more about Michelle. What made her this way? What gave her this grace? Oh, we met at, um, oh boy, I was uh, in May of 2003. I was doing a show at the Largo, which was then on Fairfax. Largo was a music and music club that also did comedy. And so I was doing a show called Bring the Rock. My friend Greg Barrett did a show called Bring the Rock. And what it was was comedians went up and talked about either a guilty pleasure song or a song that they really, really loved and, you know, did a comedic riff on why it was important or why, you know. And then a performer would go up and then perform the song. So um, Michelle had gone to the show because one of the singers on the show, one of the performers, this woman, was a— back when Michelle was living in Chicago, she was dating the lead singer of a band who broke up with her and then started going out with this lead singer female. This was years later. She had obviously gotten over it, but she was like, to amuse herself, she goes, I want to go see this woman sing. Just check it out. What, whatever. You know, they, oh, my God. He dumped me for her? What? So she went to the show, and I was on it, and I was talking about my song was Phil Collins' One More Night, which uh, was kind of a, you know what? That's not a guilty pleasure. That's a great song. I'm not defending it. It's a great song. Don't be ashamed of Phil Collins. But I also talked about how Irish girls are my kryptonite. I have this insane weakness for Irish girls. And so I went on, on about that. And then, so after the show, I'm standing near the door and I'm talking to the guy, Greg Barrett, who did the show. And we're just chatting. And then she just walked by me and just kind of like punched my arm and just went, hey, Irish girls, nice. And then walked out, like left the club, just went home. And then I went back, like I was stunned. Like, oh my God, she's 
what? Because she's so gorgeous. And um, but then I, but I was so nervous that I just went back to talking to Greg. And Greg, to his credit, went, "Go outside and talk to her, you idiot! Don't talk to me." And so, oh, okay. And then I like ran out onto Fairfax Avenue, and she was like halfway up the street. I went, "Hey!" My first word to her was "Hey!" Yelling it, "Hey!" And then she came back and go, "Look, I I, I don't want to do any of that like." bullshit game stuff or this is my phone number give me your phone number can we go on a date or something let's let's just go hang out and and hang out is that okay like i did i had no game i had no approach i said here this is my phone number give me your phone number i'm cool i'm not weird and let's go and then i took her to <laughs> although then our first date they show uh in the summer in la they they show movies at the hollywood forever cemetery uh, they they project them at night, so we went and watched uh, an Italian science fiction film called The Tenth Victim. The Tenth Victim, huh? Weirdly, uh, and then um, and I brought a picnic lunch from Jones on Third, and we drank wine. And I was, she said later, because you were very very quiet and not very talkative, and, and the reason was because I was very nervous uh, being with her. And then she goes, and you kind of lied to me because you're a motor mouth, and I didn't, you know. Later on, once we were together, then you wouldn't stop talking. Michelle and Nancy Miller worked for over a year on the LA Magazine article titled In the Footsteps of a Killer. The story had no ending, but it made an immediate impact with more people learning about the killer, more volunteer detectives motivated to solving the crime, and more people willing to support Michelle's writing. Former LA Magazine editor Nancy Miller. If you read her first draft, it was clear that there was a book in there and there was no way we were going to be able to capture this all in a 7,000-word story. But we also had um, a lot of very hard-to-read, terrifying and devastating details about people and their lives, and it just didn't quite fit into our print edition. But what we did was put a writer's cut on our website, and people who had to prove they were over 18 to get onto that section, because it's quite graphic, were able to dig into a lot of the details of a lot of these cases that then they were able to help and sort of get charged about trying to find this guy. My name is Daniel Greenberg, and I am Michelle McNamara's literary agent. So I represent Patton, and I was aware of True Crime Diary. I had visited the site a few times. I believe Gillian Flynn, who we also represent, and who was a big fan of Patton's comedy, made the connection to me that she really... Uh, loved Patton's work, but also he was doubly interesting because she is a crime writer and she knew of Michelle's site and was also a fan of hers. Patton emailed me and said, just wanted to let you know that Michelle wrote this piece for LA Magazine and um, you should read it. And she may be interested in writing a book. So I was quite interested just based on the little that I knew of the work that she was doing. And I read it and I got back to Patton and I said, this is amazing, terrifying and important. And I'd love to talk to her about developing this and turning it into a book. So he made the introduction. I was in LA. I met with Michelle and we talked about it. She had never written a book before. And a lot of what we talked about is how we go from a magazine article, which was, I don't know how many thousand words, to a book. Did she feel like she had the material to expand a magazine article into a book and what direction would it go? 
And how would we deal with the fact that we don't know who this guy is? Usually true crime books, not all, have an ending. If she didn't know who the killer was, she wanted the book to help find the killer. I remember the key point was when they discovered through DNA testing that this notorious rapist from Northern California was the same person as a notorious murderer from Southern California. And it was hugely fascinating how they discovered that an important part of the book. And we just broke it up into acts. And we also wanted to talk about Michelle. She was a detective with True Crime Diary and she wanted her story as somebody who was fascinated with crime to be a part of the story. Going back, I remember I have my own fascination with crime. So I remember when we sat down for lunch when we were in LA, we talked about some cases that are very important to me, the Aton Pates case, because I went to elementary school with him and I knew a lot about the case and she knew a lot more than I knew. And we talked about that for a long time. So I think that was a way of people connecting to her when it can, and Patton talks about that. She was really interested in crime. Gillian Flynn, from the introduction to the book. But I'll be gone in the dark while a beautiful work of reporting is equally a snapshot of the time, place, and person. Michelle brings to life the California subdivisions that were edging out orange groves, the glassy new developments that made victims the stars of their own horrific thrillers the towns that lived in the shadow of mountains that came alive once a year with thousands of scuttling tarantulas searching for mates, and the people, good God, the people, hopeful ex-hippies, striving newlyweds, a mother and her teen daughter arguing over freedom and responsibility and swimsuits for what they didn't realize would be the last time. I mean, we've all known someone who's been a victim of crime. She told me this really tragic anecdote that a homicide detective told her, which was back in the early 70s, the detective himself lived near a elementary school that he could either see from his front porch or from the back or something. But every morning, you know, he would see there were those bikes. And I remember this very clearly when I would go to school in the 70s, there were these long bike racks. And in the morning, they were filled with bikes because kids would ride their bikes to school and they would lock them up with their little, you know, padlock and go into school. And he would look at those. And then on his desk are Piles and piles and piles of abducted children reports, murdered children reports, missing children reports. And he, was, he would look at these long racks of bikes. And now in the 21st century, because of a lot of the advances in crime solving and information sharing, that stack has all but disappeared. The rates are just not as bad. They're way better at catching those people. But he looks at the bike racks and they're empty because no parent would let their kid ride bikes to school now, even though this is the safest, like during the unsafest time for kids to be enjoying a childhood, that's when they were out enjoying a childhood. And now that they've made things so safe, these kids are all driven, dropped off, monitored. Where are they? Put this little wrist thing on, you know, hit, like I want them tracked. That was such a startling thing to hear from her. New York Times bestselling author, Megan Abbott. I think that part really touches, I mean, I think that's part of what makes it so uncomfortable about true crime is that it's all, it's a scary place. But when you see the um, the way that people push through it or parents who've lost a child or, you know, in case in the case of the Pats, when, you know, it just becomes, it's some of the stories about humanity ultimately. And we all can hook into that. 
it was the combination of imagine her being a professional deep sea diver and me going, you know, I've seen that movie Jaws. And she's like, sweetie, that's not how it is. That's, that, none of that happens. So just calm down. Author Gillian Flynn. Before the Golden State Killer, there was the girl. Michelle will tell you about her. The girl dragged into the alley off Pleasant Street, murdered and left like so much trash. The girl, a young 20-something, was killed in 1984 in Oak Park, Illinois, a few blocks from where Michelle grew up in a busy Irish Catholic home. Michelle, the youngest child of six kids, signed her diary entries, Michelle, the writer. She said the murder ignited her interest in true crime. I've always thought the least appreciated aspect of a great true crime writer is humanity. Michelle McNamara had an uncanny ability to get into the minds of not just killers, but the cops who hunted them, the victims they destroyed, and the trail of grieving relatives left behind. What a lot of the detectives would talk to me about is, you know, he would do things like, well, he did a lot of the pre-surveillance, so he would break into your house. What they believe is that he would pick a neighborhood he wanted to hit, he would go around and pick probably several different victims so that the night he kind of wanted to do his thing, that terrible thing, he had at least someone. So, and so, because you would notice that multiple people would be called, a lot of crank calls, things like that. He was trying to figure out who was home. He was doing prowling. So he probably had several different victims. You know, he preferred single story houses. He wanted the bedroom to be on the first floor. That made it a lot easier. Often there was a green belt close by where he could escape or a freeway. Then the other thing he would do that was really sort of savvy was he would park just outside the perimeter, sometimes between houses, so no one would say, what's that weird car right in front of my house? So mm. it was like just perfectly parked outside the police canvas, so later no one would, again, put the car back to him, go to the crime scene. He tied his victim in such a way that he knew he had a certain amount of time to get away, and it was just the exact amount of time you need to get back to that car and leave. Mm. So he had all these methods. What he did to the victims that was particularly sadistic and the victim that I interviewed described to me is, you know, it really, again, what came up again and again is this was not about sex. This was about terror and, and instilling fear and terror in these people. He would not let you know when he left. He'd act like he'd leave. And then a half an hour when you're just starting to breathe normally and try to get out of your bindings, he'd just appear in the doorway again. So, you know, it was like it was like someone had figured out this sort of all of our primal fears. I mean, right. he's coming in the middle of the night right. with a mask, right. talking through clenched teeth at you. The other thing that I thought was very noteworthy and that almost every detective brought up to me was this guy had a script in his head and it went if, when you read the police files, it's the same thing over and over again, what he said and what he did. And when it didn't adhere to that script is when he became incredibly agitated. So it was like there was almost like a movie going on in his head. Michelle was simultaneously piecing together evidence to try to convict the killer and working with her literary agent to structure a book proposal. Literary agent Dan Greenberg. So we just started going back and forth with drafts and figuring out where all of these pieces, the personal part of it, the older research parts of it, the forward-thinking parts of it, where all of that would go in an arc and basically came up with 10 or 12 chapters and gave each of them three or four pages each. And it was pretty long and pretty extensive. And I think we worked on it for three or four months until we both said, okay, we don't have the killer. There were a couple of editors who had reached out to her and then contacted me who had heard of the 
LA Magazine story, so people were ready to look at it. And we sent it out, made calls and emailed it out, and just started waiting to see who was going to be interested. I do remember the day after I sent it out, checking late at night and seeing Jennifer Barth's email. She had read it that day. She said, this is absolutely horrifying and wonderful, and I really want to publish this book. Let me know what you're doing. So that's an email that an agent loves to see, and she was the first to respond. She ended up buying the book. My name is Paul Haynes, and I began working with Michelle prior to the um, conception of the book when she was working on her piece for Los Angeles Magazine. I first connected with Michelle in 2011, and she began writing the book in the summer of 2013. I was a follower of her blog, True Crime Diary, uh, for some time. In fact, it was the only true crime blog that I religiously read. My port of entry into actually working on this case, which is something that I never anticipated I would be doing, was the geography. Given the two phases of the series, there is a distinct geographic sequence where the offender is offending in Sacramento County for a two-year period, and then moves to the East Bay, and then relocates to Southern California. So you have three distinct locations, at least. There are actually more locations associated with the series, together with a variety of characteristics that are either known or suspected. Michelle spent months, then years, researching the multitude of crimes committed by the Golden State Killer. She would obsess about the smallest details. As Gillian Flynn notes in the introduction to the book, Michelle's doggedness in pursuing this case was astounding. In a typical instance, she tracked down a pair of cufflinks that had been stolen from a Stockton crime scene in 1977 on the website of a vintage store in Oregon. But she didn't do just this. She could also tell you that, quote, boys' names beginning and end were relatively rare, appearing only once in the top 100 names of the 1930s and 40s, when the original owner of the cufflinks was likely born. Mind you, this isn't even a clue leading to the killer. It's a clue leading to the cufflinks that the killer stole. This dedication to particulars was typical, writes Michelle. I once spent an afternoon tracking down every detail I could about a member of the 1972 Rio Americano high school water polo team because in the yearbook photo he appeared lean and to have big calves, a possible physical trait of the Golden State Killer. In the midst of this all-consuming research, on April 21st, 2016, Michelle McNamara unexpectedly but peacefully died in her sleep. She was 46 years old and left behind her husband and their seven-year-old daughter. Researcher Paul Haynes. So I was working with her as her lead researcher and um, following her death, I, uh, I was retained and I helped manage the completion of the book. Before she passed in January of 2016, we had gone to the Orange County Sheriff's Department with the objective of looking through their archived files on this case, which we were told were being stored in a cold case closet in the homicide department. What I didn't know was Michelle's actual objective was to leave with those materials, which, you know, I, I wouldn't think would be a realistic thing to do because homicide investigators are notoriously um, tight-lipped and 
you know, notoriously stingy with information. So it, it was to my great surprise that after three hours at the Orange County Sheriff's Department, we left with 40 bankers' boxes of evidence and uh, police files. It took months to sort through those and begin marking those that were of interest that we wanted to digitize. And during the process of organizing and digitizing them, we were going through them. And it was at that time that Michelle died. And, you know, this was up to that point, the most exciting development in our process. This was a case that quickly consumed me. I think what was remarkable about it was the scope of it. And, you know, I've long had an interest in true crime, unsolved serial cases in particular, because the um, perpetrators are usually random strangers. That makes the investigation very difficult, searching for a needle in a haystack. That also makes the motive quite unrelatable and almost exotic. It's not something prosaic like greed or jealousy. It's sexual sadism, and that's something that most people just can't connect with. And uh, this particular case spanned a 10-year period and 10 counties in California, over a dozen cities, so it involved multiple jurisdictions, upwards of um, 100 victims, you know, if you count the males that were victimized. And yet this case is largely flown under the radar. Not a lot of people were aware of it. And the first time I heard about it was a, uh, a rebroadcast of an MSNBC Investigate special that was produced in the early 2000s, which you know, only covered the Southern California phase of the series because at that time it had not yet been connected to the the Northern California East Area Rapist series. You know, he said that two things happened. He said the rape victims all believed he was going to kill them. He threatened to kill them. And they very much felt he wanted to kill them and he was going to kill them. And then when he didn't, it was always kind of, a, you know, he said he would often talk about going into the house for the first time and the victim, just the relief that they were still alive. That's what a lot of victims felt. For Michelle, writing about the Golden State Killer, trying to solve the puzzle and catch the criminal was a profound act of faith. The what if, what if we catch him, was never far from her mind. I can't imagine, you know, feeling the same way about another case that I and how invested I became in this case. It's hard for me to even imagine that happening. That would be ideal if it did happen. But, you know, something, I guess I haven't put this spotlight on myself in the same way, but something I have often sort of in the back of my head thought about the message board is, what will happen if this case gets solved? Because this does seem to fulfill something for a lot of people, this kind of puzzling out of the clues and stuff. And if you have the answer... You have the answer, and it's not a mystery anymore. And um, you kind of wonder about that. And for those who love Michelle and her writing, the challenge of publishing the book about the mystery that meant so much to her had just begun. Next time on All Be Gone in the Dark. We sign the contract, and Michelle goes to write. She kept uncovering and making new sets of contacts, talking to different sets of investigators. There was always talk of something that was on the horizon that really might catch this guy. She would send me chunks of the manuscript. I remember one time she said, don't read this alone at night. But I was alone at night, except for I did have my dog. I was checking the locks. I was so flipped out. I mean, she knew what she could do with words. There's a room full of 
notebooks and notes and just things that I'll never have the chance to sit down with her after the book comes out and go back through the process of what it was like to pursue each aspect of this maze. And also, I'll never get the chance to know whether if I were to ask her that, if she would go, I'd rather not talk about that. The stuff that she wouldn't want to end up talking about would be just as revealing to me as the stuff that she would. Subscribe to I'll Be Gone in the Dark on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from. The book that this podcast is based on, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, is available wherever print books, ebooks, and audiobooks are sold. It's published by Harper, an imprint of HarperCollins Publishers. This podcast is a production of Harper Audio. Nathan Rossborough, Technical Director. Anna Maria Alessi, Executive Producer, Writer, and Editor. Thank you for joining us, and see you next time.